This is Paul Nobles from the Eat Form Coaches course. I am sitting here with Mike, Dr. Mike Nelson, and Dr. Lane Norton is actually on the phone call at this point. And so we're going to chat a little bit about some of uh, Lane's interests and uh, thoughts related to certain things. Lane, for the few people who don't know who you are, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, so I'm basically, I guess for people who don't know me, I'm uh, a science geek who likes to lift. Is <laughs> the best way I can describe it. So I, I've i always been into science, and um, while I was doing my, my bachelor's in uh, biochemistry, I got really into bodybuilding. And by the time I was, I would say a junior in college, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, but I knew I loved bodybuilding, I loved training, I loved nutrition, and so I decided, well, I don't know what I want to do, so I'll go do more school. That seems like it'll work. <laughs> and uh, actually, the, the way I found my PhD advisor, Dr. Don Lehman, was um, I just went to PubMed and typed in some, some keywords I was interested in. It was uh, leucine, muscle protein synthesis. And uh, Lehman was like the second article that came up, and I emailed him, went and visited Illinois, really liked it, and went there, did my PhD, and uh, along the way, was pretty successful competing in bodybuilding and, and now powerlifting. So kind of, I guess, a, a hybrid of, of three different things, I guess you could say. Yeah, I would say that for the good majority of people who, you know, well, the few people who don't know who Lane Norton is, um, a lot of people have been introduced to you through bodybuilding.com and much of your writing there. Uh, now, you also have a, a podcast. Your YouTube channel is, and we'll, we'll sort of get into that in a little bit here, but your YouTube channel is pretty pretty informative. I, I, I've seen that you've made a number of 30 to 45-minute videos on topics that we reference all the time. And so um, the uh, can you talk a little bit about those projects? Yeah, I mean, I really try to stay up on social media. Uh, I mean, now, like, one of the things that I'm into is Periscope, so kind of live. <laughs> like, I'll do, I'll do live training. Um, I don't want to say seminars, but, like, while I'm training, I'll set my phone up so people can watch me, and then I'll kind of, you can, people can post things, and you can answer questions. So I kind of like doing that. You know, it motivates me because I, I have an ego and people are watching, so, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to sit here and pretend like that doesn't help but also I can help people, you know, understand why I'm doing what I do. And uh, I think people really appreciate that. So I'm kind of on all social media. The only thing I can't figure out is Snapchat. I still don't understand how that works. Um, maybe that's a sign I'm getting old, but um, with uh, YouTube, you know, it's funny because I'm a, I'm a partner with a company called Full Screen. So that's kind of how I make revenue through YouTube. But I mean, it's not, it's very, very little, but um they, they told me, they actually said, hey, is there any way you can shorten your videos to like five to ten minutes? And I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> I'm just, you know, if I have a topic, I, I want to, I, I, you know, scientifically, it's very, very difficult to do a uh, topic justice in, you know, a five-minute period of time. Like, you're going to have to generalize, and it's just not going to, it's, I think we're always, like as scientists, we're always walking a fine line between, Stating it plainly enough to where the, the layperson can understand, but also stating it so plainly that it's completely wrong. 
are not completely wrong, but it's just so general that it loses all the nuance to it and all the context. And I think that that's, I think one of the things, I, I, not to toot my horn, but I think one of the things I'm pretty good at is being able to toe that line and present that information to people to where it becomes digestible, but it also doesn't lose the crux of the scientific core of it. Yeah, I know when um, I first started talking, um, getting really heavy into the marketing world and doing video sales letters and things like this, um, one of the, the best guys that uh, is out there is a guy named John Benson. And John is sort of interesting because he recommends 45-minute video sales letters. And the idea is, wow. is sort of similar to what you're saying, Lane, where um, if you have an engaged audience – they'll stick with you, right? If you're giving them yeah. valuable information, they, they'll stick with you, you know? So, um, that's a, go ahead. That's a, no, that's a good point. And, and people have often said, well, you know, you could get more viewers if you did X. And I mean, there's a lot of YouTube channels out there who have, you know, hundreds of thousands of viewers, but they're catering to the lowest common denominator, you know? Right. And I mean, I, I, I don't want that. Like the, the, you know, like I, not to sound arrogant, but I make enough money. Like I don't need the extra two, three, four hundred dollars a month from YouTube, whatever it would get if I, you know, doubled my viewership. I just, it, it, you know, it, that's not why I'm doing it. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, you know, just kind of not dumb it down. Well, if they dumb it down or they just, you know, they kind of are, uh, over the top for the sake of being over the top so they get more views. And what I always tell people is like, I, I don't want, honestly, people who are intellectually lazy, I, I'd rather not have them watch my channel. So, you know, I've got like almost 80,000 subscribers, but I'd like to think that my audience is probably a little bit more educated than the average audience out there because they're willing to sit through, you know, a 20, 30 minute video and, uh, you know, because they're so interested in acquiring new information. Well, what's interesting about what you're saying is that having a niche is really super valuable in anything, right? And and, and one of the things that's sort of, um, you know, when we started Eat to Perform and uh, kind of the general premise at that time, everybody was talking about, well, you need to be controversial. And certainly there are pages that got really popular being controversial. But I think one of the things that... Um, you know, made us popular right from the beginning was one, we listened to our audience. So one of the things that was sort of interesting, and I kind of want to segue into what I think is going to be the main topic. Um, we started getting a lot of, of, you know, 48 year old females as an example. Mm. And so, you know, whenever you're start talking about fat loss and what I was talking about was, you know, I had spent, much of my 30s dieting and really struggling with that process and never quite figuring it out. And so I went the, mm -hmm. I went the opposite way and started really working on capacity, keeping food in the equation, and people were really interested in that. And then obviously, you know, I, uh, you know, tapped Michael on the shoulder and say, hey, buddy, I need your help over here. <laughs> you know? And so, so, you know, we never really sought out controversy. And, you know, here we are 1.2 million fans later and we still don't, you know, it, we, we just put yeah. out the information as it sits. And we've actually referenced uh, 
when you look at the core of what Eat to Perform is, um, we're really a, a lot about reverse dieting, right? Because um, a lot of our audience does a lot of stuff. They either run, they power lift, they CrossFit. And so what ends up happening is they sort of get bad information from a lot of fronts, right? Or I would say misinformed information. And so what they end up doing is kind of under eating um, by trying to eat intuitively. You know, you could call that paleo if you want, but you know, that, that really is a lot of people come from paleo or mostly whole foods background and they never really look, you know, at matching their energy output to their energy intake. And so, you know, the, the core of what we do is reverse dieting. And I would say your videos on YouTube are probably some of the most watched videos, some of the, the videos that we reference a lot of the time. So can you talk a little bit about reverse dieting and why it's important? I know that from your perspective, you're thinking of it as a bodybuilder. But when you think of people who've unsuccessfully dieted like myself for a long time, how important is reverse dieting for that situation? Well, I think so. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you kind of, I, I always like to give context. So I'll tell you kind of how I, I'm not the first person to coin something reverse dieting. I think Alberto Nunez or Eric Helms probably said it first. But what I, what I noticed with a lot of clients, particularly females who had under eaten for a long period of time was they didn't lose weight on calories they should lose weight on. And for example, what I mean is, um, I could have a, I mean, I'm going to make a hypothetical example, but I'm sure I've come across this. Um, I'll have a 130 pound, 140 pound female or 150 pound female. And I'll look at her caloric intake and it'll be like 1200 calories. And they're doing, you know, two hours of activity a day. And maybe they have one higher calorie day a week, but it's not insane. You know, it's 2000 calories or something like that. And they won't be losing weight. They're just kind of maintaining at that. And I'm, I'm just sitting there thinking, man, that's – well, at first, my first thought over the first few years of observing this, and even with clients who I diet down, I noticed that like people who had a history of dieting would really have to get a lot more aggressive um, to get lean. And I started – at first I thought, well, I think these people are probably overeating and not telling me you know, because people underreport so much. And then that kind of moved away to the point where I knew people, some of these people, how, you know, just stringent they were and how badly they wanted to win. And just, I mean, honestly, they were, they were telling me, like asking me to cut calories, you know, and if somebody's overeating, I don't think they're going to be asking you to, you know, if they're secretly overeating, why would they ask you to cut calories? Now I, I could be wrong, but, um, you know, I, I kind of got to the point where I'm like, well, maybe not everybody's lying to me. And, um, you know, you start digging through the literature, and there's not a lot of direct literature on this, but what you do find is kind of from a 30,000-foot view, um, they show that the more times you diet in your life, the more likely to be fat, or you're more likely to be fat. And it's associated with how many times you diet in your life. And the other, the other thing is, you can see quite a bit of research where they show that the, the rate at which your metabolism slows in response to dieting is disproportionate to the amount of body fat and, and lean muscle mass you lose. So for a long time, we thought, 
well, yeah, your metabolic rate goes down, but it's just because you're losing lean body mass, right? So if you lose 20% lean body mass, like you're going to lose quite a bit of your metabolic rate. And what we find is that it's actually quite disproportionate to that. And, um, and I've seen pretty extreme examples of it just anecdotally. And I know Chris, uh, Dr. Chris Foz, he did a case study on himself getting ready for a show where he only lost, I think he lost like, you know, five pounds of lean body mass, something like that. Now, you have to keep in mind that that's, you know, part of that's water, part of that's, you know, even digestive tissue, GI tissue tends to reduce when you're, he probably lost a few pounds of actual muscle tissue, but his, his basal color, his basal metabolic rate went from like 2,400 to like under 1,300, which for somebody who has 190 pounds of lean body mass is insane, you know? And so when I, when I started what you, what you find is that people who have really chronic history of chronic diet, their metabolism is much lower than you predict through any kind of equation, uh, like Harris Benedict or anything like that. So I started thinking about, okay, well, if you're already at, if you're maintaining body weight on 1,200 calories a day, what are you going to need to lose body fat, right? And so I, I kind of had this, I don't want to say I'm the first one to have this idea, but I had this idea of, okay, why don't we why don't we try to get your metabolism normal? So why don't we slowly add calories in, right? And hopefully, it doesn't always work this way, but hopefully we can minimize body fat gain. And then once we have you back up to a normal calorie level, then we can try to drop you back down and see, you know, how well it works. And it works to varying degrees. What I find is that people who have really chronically restricted for a really long period of time, a lot of times you can build them up pretty well but then they're still sluggish on the way down because it's like your metabolism has memory. Um, and there's actually, like, there's, there's research. I, I can't remember the exact study. Lauren Conlon said it to me, but they show that even like five to eight weeks of low calorie dieting produces adaptations in your metabolism, changes in your metabolism that persist for over a year. So I tell people, you really got to be careful how you diet because it can, if you, um, uh, Dr. McLean from University of Denver had a really good line in a review paper he wrote on uh, the, the biology of weight regain, and it was uh, he said when you when you diet really restrictively, you activate your body's self defense system because think about it when you're dieting really restrictively. I mean you're basically telling your body, hey, I'm starving, and so your body activates all these systems to slow down your metabolic rate and ready you for body fat regain so that when you do come across calories, you can pack them back in very efficiently. And we see this all the time, just practically in the real world. Think about people who, who diet kind of almost all year. They're always trying to lose weight. And then Christmas comes up and they put on 10 pounds or they go on a cruise and they put on 15 pounds, you know? And so it's taking them so long to lose weight, but then they just have one slip up and they put on a lot of body fat. And so kind of bring this back around. It's a very long-winded answer, I realize. That's okay. <laughs> bring this back around, um, there was a study looking, it was in rats, but there was no the way you can really control for this. They looked at either 12 weeks of just chronically overfeeding rats or 12 weeks of, of weight cycling. So they would have them restrict, and then they would overfeed them, restrict and overfeed them. And at the end of the 12 weeks, they made sure that the calorie intake 
was overall the same. So the, the total calories consumed during the 12-week period was the same. And the rats doing the calorie cycling, the weight cycling, gained more body fat, significantly more body fat. So what I think you have is when you're dieting, you're dieting real aggressively, you're really pushing down that metabolic rate. You're slowing the metabolic rate down. Your body's adapting to that low-calorie intake. And so when you, if you just put a lot of calories in right after a diet, or you know when your when your metabolic rate's low, you can gain a lot of body fat pretty quickly, but your metabolic rate takes longer to recover. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, obviously, so, obviously, you're touching on a few things that that's near and dear to Mike's heart. You know, related to metabolic flexibility and and you know some level of fat adaptation as it relates to, and then some level of carbohydrate adaptation. Um, one of the things that I think would be interesting to hear is your view as it relates to how long it would take someone to recover. But to preface that, what I want to say is that you're talking, you know, you're mentioning bodybuilding a fair amount because obviously that's, you know, clientele that you work with. That's obviously, right. you know, it's something near and dear to your heart. But what, you know, we see, you know, on a large scale, um, I mean, each reform has 75,000 members, many of which, you know, are the examples of what you're talking about, but they're not bodybuilders. They're just right. regular folks that, um, because, you know, what you were saying is as it relates to underreporting, you hear a lot of gym owners say that. And we work with a ton of gym owners and we're often saying to them, people are telling you the truth more than you think. Right. And yeah. Oftentimes, yeah. you know, if I was a gym owner, okay, so so I think we're probably all in a similar school as it relates to the paleo diet, right? But on, mm -hmm. the, on the same note, if you're a gym owner, it's kind of tempting to go, well, this simplistic solution would be the answer. And I actually had, right. I actually had a gym owner ask me if they could use my, my in-body machine, um, and I said no, and um, for their paleo challenge, and I said no, and and she said, why? I said, well, because for 90% of the people that are going to be using that information, it will be no problem at all, right? But for those 10% of people, it's basically like, you know, giving free heroin to a heroin addict. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's, I was like, I'm not going to be a party to that, you know, and, you know, it's just not what we do. And when you look at the way that, you know, our clients interact with, you know, literally thousands of people, it always comes back to, you know, certainly there, I mean, you know, we've been able to put on, when you can put on a lot of muscle, it's sort of interesting when people talk about putting on muscle mass, because, you know, as a trained athlete, you know, that's really hard to do. But when you're coming, oh, yeah. when you're coming from a deficient background, it's actually very easy to do. In fact, we've we've put on a lot of muscle to a lot of people in this situation because they were eating somewhat intuitively. They had some list of naughty and nice foods, right? And they, yep. they didn't yep. eat this. What was interesting is today, actually, I did a webinar earlier with um, Dr. Tracy Mann, and she has this eating lab at the University of Minnesota. And what she talked about was how people obsess as it relates to food, and I, I joked with her, yeah, that all these paleo 30-day um, challenges basically are followed up by the 31st day where they, you know, binge on cheesecake and beer. And, exactly. 
And you know, you see that. Well, I think you're. I think you're. If I can interrupt. Yeah, no, go ahead. I think you're touching on a on a really important point about dieting and and something that really stuck with me that my assistant so he said, and she's my co-host on Physique Science Radio, and the the data absolutely supports this. And that's if you the way you're dieting right now, if you can't see yourself doing that in in a month, in a year, in two years. You have to rethink your plan because it's going to backfire. It's going to blow up in your face because anybody can, a lot of people can be committed to something for 30 days or 60 days or 90 days or whatever it is. But what the data says, if you look at weight loss, we have a terrible problem. Um, The data basically says if you never want body fat, don't put it on the first place because you're never getting it off. Uh, The data says that within a year of people who lose significant body body weight, like 10% of the body weight, within a year, uh, 70% of them have put it all back on. Within two years, 85%, and within three years, 95%, and one-half to two-thirds of those people actually add even more weight because they're eating in an unsustainable way, and what exactly what you said happens is that they go on the 30-day whatever challenge, and on the 31st day, they're blowing out, you know, and they add they add back all that fat much faster than they took it off. So that brings that brings you back to the original original question because one of you know one of our answers is obviously to get people to expand their work capacity um, and and really add you know a lot of food. I mean, you know, I'm spending time with two. Um, of the Eat Inform staff here, one's from Australia and the other one's from London, and both of these gals eat more than three thousand calories on a daily basis, right? And yeah. now, you know, they work out hard, but they're not—they're not like gym killers or anything like that. They're not doing six hours right. a day or anything like that. But I think that you know, most people are too scared to challenge the top end, and they never yeah. really kind of figure out. It's sort of it, you know. I mean, a lot of what we talk about has its basis in bodybuilding, but even in, in bodybuilding, sure. you know, especially for, for natural bodybuilders, they'll often not push the top end, you know, even, right. even, you know, something like if it's... Well, think about, think about what the government tells us and think about what we're always told, eat less calories, eat less calories, eat less calories, you should eat less calories. If the answer was that simple, we would have solved the obesity crisis. Okay. Now I'm not saying that calories in versus calories out doesn't matter. I'm not saying that. Um, it absolutely does matter. But calories in versus calories out is a much more uh, flexible equation. It's a moving target, and what I'm, we, we don't have all the even have all the variables, right? So you know you can predict what somebody's caloric output may be and it could be more or it could be much less than what you predict just based on their individual metabolism and that you can you know you can make that number move right so if we can get somebody up to the point like your gals who are eating 3000 calories a day and they're maintaining their body weight well guess what they can they can diet at 2400 calories a day which for some women is going to make them gain weight right and so, like, that's a perfect example of how pushing the top end can actually help you out uh, over the long term because you make your, like, you think about the, so if the opposite to that is, you know, when you're, when you're chronically restricted, 
think about from an evolutionary perspective what you're telling your body. You're telling your body food is scarce, so I need you to be as sufficient as possible and holding on to whatever I give you, right? Whereas if you're chronically kind of, you know, overeating with the caveat that it can't be too far over maintenance, you have to slowly add it over time, and you also have to work out, you know, pretty hard, you're telling your body food is plentiful. You don't have to be real thrifty with it, right? Yeah. And so you you create an environment. I mean, I've on the top end of stuff. I've I've seen I've had males who I had a hundred I had a two hundred pound male who was up to consuming over seven hundred grams of carbs and two hundred grams of fat per day and maintaining his body weight on that or slightly gaining like maybe a quarter pound a week. And then I've also had I had a female who I took from this is Katie Rutherford, because uh, some of the people will probably know her. She she's ended her contest prep diet, and obviously this is you know obviously not the average person, but um, she ended her contest prep diet at 143 pounds, and she was on 120 grams of carbs a day. Not terrible, but you know she's down there. And uh, we got her all the way up to 320 grams of carbs a day and 75 grams of fat. And she actually lost a pound during that time period over like nine months. So, you know, I think what that points to is, again, that uh, one, food is fuel. You, you want to you have good training sessions, you need to eat enough. And two... Um, like I said, that calories in versus calories out equation is a, is a moving target and we can't think of it as something that's static. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting that you're bringing up that point because, uh, one of the things that happened, my, my daughter asked for a Fitbit, um, to, to kind of work on her, yeah, to work on her sleep. And so I was like, you know, I was really concerned. My daughter's 15 years old, and so I'm concerned about, like, you know, eating disorders and all these other kind of things. As a parent, you think of these things, of right? And so, um, but within days of her getting hers, I got mine. And a couple months ago, um, what I did for a whole month was I ate my Fitbit number and uh-huh. um, just experimented with that and so there are days where you know i'll do like a half marathon row or something like that and i'll burn five thousand calories and well the fitbit doesn't record that all that well but um but if i burned five thousand calories i ate five thousand calories and it shocked the hell out of people that my weight stayed relatively you know in in a similar range and and then when i wrote that article and you know kind of published what, you know, I'd found kind of anecdotally, you know, people were really bothered by it and they were really bothered by it because they want, see, whenever we write anything that's sort of anti-diet, we don't ever get the response that we think we're going to get because people want to believe that dieting is the answer. They want to believe that, you know, all well, think the, about how much they've invested in it throughout right. the course of their life a lot of times. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, you know, somebody who's done multiple 30-day paleo challenges, right, they always point the finger at themselves. When in reality, the, those paleo challenges failed them four times. 
you know. But the, right. you know, exactly. if you look at if you look at dieters, they're notorious for feeling like they lack self control. When in fact, dieters are often the people with the most self control. I mean, if all the gym owners that I talk to that think that their chronic dieters are lacking self control, those are the people that have the loosest way of eating there are. You know, but it just. Yeah. Because they have work capacity, because they've been fit most of their life and things of that nature, um, it just doesn't have the same repercussions. So one of the things that I think is, is sort of interesting, we probably disagree a little bit on this point just because we've seen so many people um, that are maybe a little different from the people that, that you work with. But can you talk a little bit about how long you think it takes someone to recover from reverse diet uh, like a like a dieting you know yeah sure. a bad approach to diet so yeah i know yeah i know what you're asking <laughs> um yeah so how long does it take to recover from a diet and uh, that's an excellent question and basically we don't have a good answer we get some clues from studies like the, the minnesota starvation experiment um and what it seems to be is it's basically proportional to the duration and intensity of the diet. So, for example, like I have people say, Lane, I'm doing a two-week mini-cut. Do I need to reverse diet? No. <laughs> you know, like, and that's, that's not going to be enough to really move the needle unless you're, like, starving yourself for two weeks. So, um, you know, but if you're, if you're somebody who dieted, you know, for years – it may take years of a concerted effort to get you kind of back to a normal state, you know. Um, you know, if you're if you went on a, a twelve week, you know, pretty intense diet, it may take twelve weeks or more to recover. In fact, based on uh, Dr. Foz's data, it looks like it actually probably takes a little bit longer. Um, just looking at his hormone levels, his BMR, his lean body mass. It took him longer to get back to normal than it did to get down to, to that level. So, you know, evolution really, you know, works against us when it comes to, to getting really lean or, or leaner. Like, you know, people seem to, you know, obese is not not good, right? But lean is not really great for survival either, you know? And so we always have to keep in mind what it is our body is trying to do. Our bodies. Yeah, two basic functions, survive and reproduce, right? I mean, that's, that's the goal in terms of evolution. And so it doesn't really give a damn whether or not you want a six-pack or not because that being that lean is not conducive to evolution. I mean, think about the leanest you've ever been in your life. You usually don't feel that great, you know? Like, I can tell you when I've, when I've been lean enough for stage, sure, I look great. I feel like absolute crap. You know, and that's regardless of how many calories I'm eating or how I'm eating anything like that. Like, if you get lean enough, you're just not going to feel that good. And so your body is really fighting that, that, um, to get for you to get, is really fighting against you getting leaner. And yeah, it's just like a self preservation thing. What's that? It's a self preservation thing. Yeah, sure, of course. I mean, yeah, exactly. And so, we have to understand that. We have to appreciate that. I mean, we can hide, we can stick our, I, mean, I think a lot of people stick their heads in sand about it, but uh, the fact of the matter is it's there. And, uh, you know, because I get a lot of, I don't know if you guys get this a lot, and, and so I, I kind of 
answered the question, I hope, and I'm, I'm, I'm parlaying this. No, you did. I, I, I get this a lot from people where they think because they don't have a six-pack that they're not healthy. I especially get this from, from women that are people that go, I, want, I just want to be healthy. Well, okay, well, is your blood work abnormal? No. Is your blood pressure high? No. Is your heart rate elevated? No. Do you have any kind of medical condition I don't know about? No. Um, okay, can you go out and, and, and you know run a mile in a decent time? Yeah. Can you train hard in the gym? Yeah. Well, what 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 exactly makes you think you aren't healthy? You know, just because you have some pudge around your waistline, like that's not. You know, look at you can find plenty of like NFL players and that sort of thing who are by every qualification in great shape who look a little pudgy, you know? I think people have mistaken that they assume being lean is required for being athletic or in shape, and that's not the case at all. In fact, there's actually documented fat but fit. Like, you can be overweight, even almost obese, and still be in shape by every measure we have. Um, And so I think on the other end, too, People make the mistake of thinking obesity in itself, and this is my opinion, but obesity in itself, I don't think that it's very dangerous. I think what happens is people who are obese, the, the, the mitochondrial and cellular changes that are associated with obesity are what's, are what's detrimental. Well, actually, because you it, know, kind of I, I just to interrupt you because I, I think you're onto a really ahead. great tangent. The... Um, you know, I think research does back up the fact that obesity um, is a bigger issue when you're inactive. And then when you're active, Absolutely. you can actually be very healthy. And why I think that that's important talking to regular people, you know, because the the average person, they they think that this is about health. And if you said the thing that you can do that's most important in your health right now is make a little bit better choice and then go walk around the street. And then if you can start yeah. there, then that's a much better place than thinking that you have to, you know, squat 500 pounds or, you know, just eat chicken and kale because, you know, that's not reality. It's sort of well, interesting. What, go ahead. Well, and that's, we, we need to lower the entry barriers into fitness, right? Because what people do, I mean, there's a lot of people out there who will say, well, if I've got to do what you're saying, eat kale and chicken and, you know, lose off and they're really, really overweight, they've got to lose 150 pounds to be, you know, in shape. I mean, they're just going to go, well, I can't do it, you know, and they're not even going to try. But if you tell them, hey, look, first, the, the, they've shown that almost all, you can almost all the health benefits of weight loss in the first 10% of weight loss. So I can take somebody who's 100 pounds overweight. If I get them to lose 10 pounds and go to the gym consistently, they're going to be in shape, okay? So I tell people, hey, listen, look, if you want to get leaner just because you want to look better, I have no problem with that. But the most important and you lose that first 10% and keep that first 10% off. That, that is the biggest thing. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you mentioned, you earlier referenced the Minnesota starvation study. And uh, what was interesting about that, we, we actually were just having this discussion with those two gals that I was talking about earlier. Because one of the things that we always tell people with Eat to Perform is 
give us six to eight weeks. You know, just trust the process. We'll walk you through the reverse dieting, get away from some of the bad habits, and we'll just have a schedule that will help you feel better. And, you know, I kind of asked the question, I said, do you guys think it's placebo? And what I was really saying was the six to eight weeks allows them to have establish a different relationship with food. If you remember back to, yeah. to the study, the Minnesota starvation study, these guys were like, you know, they'd never been fascinated with food. They start clipping recipes and, and pictures of food and, and things of this nature. So now all of a sudden we take someone who is eating 1300 calories, right? They're, you know, a CrossFitter and as a female, they're supposed to be eating 2700 calories. We gradually work them out of that. We're, we're doing a couple things. One, we're sort of fixing some of that hormonal stuff, but not, not in a huge way. Cause like you're saying, sometimes it takes a while for that to recover, but, but, right. but very quickly you can change the relationship that you have with food. And when, oh, yeah. you know, when we started talking about, you know, Hey, what do you like about each reform? You know, we wanted to everybody, to, you know, we wanted everybody to say all the, the great things, but what they, they almost all said was you guys changed our relationship with food and you allowed me to move fat loss from the top of the list to on the list. Right. Right. And, yeah. and you know, I mean, if that's all we've got on the table, I'm good with that. Right. Great. Now, one of the things that I wanted to, um, to, to talk to you about a little bit, uh, because you, you referenced it earlier, Mike and I, we did a seminar at, uh, a, um, it was it was a it was a clinic for CrossFit Games um, athletes, and so some of the best you know CrossFit Games people were at this thing, and we body fat tested all of them, and many of the guys that you know you see on TV and they're super shredded, and you know the you know ten percent, eleven percent, nine and a half percent, and what was sort of interesting about it is that you need to have a little bit in the tank, right? You know, when you're oh, yeah. kind of doing some of these longer events and, and things of that nature. But probably more importantly, because I remember one person in particular was Nick Durankar. And Nick is is a very muscular guy. But, you know, he was, he was 10%. You know, I've asked him if it would be okay if I said that, you know, in the past. So I know he doesn't have any problem with it. But the thing about Nick, when you see him in real life, is that he has a lot of muscle. And so if you have yeah. a lot of muscle, you can actually have a higher body fat percentage and you still look pretty doggone good on the beach, right? And so can, oh, yeah, you, can sure. you talk a little bit about, you know, functioning as, you know, I mean, obviously a linebacker um, would be a great example in, in football. Um, certainly there are basketball players that aren't sitting there at 4% body fat. I mean, I did, right. I did have someone who was coaching, you know, bodybuilding people and they started moving into the CrossFit world and they started saying, you know, that body fat, you know, really didn't play much of a role and that you were best to have it really super low. And, you know, I disagreed mm. completely. It depends on the person. Yeah, it does depend on the person. But I mean, I kind of remember, I don't know if you guys remember Anton Ono, right? He got like super fascinated with being like, four percent body fat and he just like just was in the toilet at the olympics you know with that experience yeah. 
And so I think that, you know, like you were saying, when you're stage ready, that's when you feel the worst, you know? Yeah. And so people oh, see... Oh, yeah. run a mile at that point, I, no way. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, now, I think one of the things that's interesting when you talk about the length of, of, you know, what it takes to recover, if I had been dieting for a long time, right, and... I heard that, I would think, oh wow, you know, I'm maybe go into a little denial because obviously yeah. I want to hear that I can be lean. But I often think, you know, I think what really happens for a lot of people is they don't examine the relationship that they have with themselves. And if they can like work on that in that process, then it allows them it's sort of like what we were talking about with obesity one of the reasons why i always point out the obesity thing is because it points to patience and so if you have you know as someone who was obese who was you know mid 40th percentile for body fat percentage and actually was able to take that off the 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 everything that failed me was actually to my benefit because i knew that all those things did not work. And so logic prevailed, and I said the exact opposite's got to be right. And ultimately, it ended up being right. But more importantly, it's been right for thousands of people. Now, there's always varying degrees to that. <laughs> and some people sort of struggle um, from that perspective. Can you talk a little bit more about metabolic damage and, and, and thoughts? Because, you know, you know, I'd like to close that thought out a little bit. Well, I, I think that so you know it's so broad. But right. I, I think that the the first thing you mentioned that, that's really good is we need to change people's perspective on on themselves, right? And so I tell people all the time: if you're looking for a physique to make you happy, you're going to be miserable. It doesn't matter what shows up in the mirror. I promise you. Okay. I have I have friends who have the most amazing physiques. Like, I have some friends who have amazing physiques and, like, the people would, would, would kill for them. And you wouldn't believe the way they talk about themselves, you know? Like, it's just, you know, it, it, so I tell people, like, look, it's okay to want to be leaner. That's fine, you know? But but if you're waiting for that physique to make you happy, you're going to be waiting a lot. You're going to be waiting until you're dead. Like, because it's not going to. Okay, and so you know, doing some self-reflection of, of why are you doing this? Are you doing this because you think you'll be happy when you get that kind of physique? Because that's the wrong reason to do it. If you're doing it because you say, "Hey, I think it'd be cool to be lean," okay, that's cool, no problem. But you have to take an objective understanding of what it may take to get there. And to your point of of you know people going into denial, I've absolutely had that. I, I've lost. I don't know how many potential clients because I've told them what I think that they need to hear, not what they want to hear. Because what they want to hear is, oh, hey, I've got this magic plan to eat these foods, but these foods for, well, I know you haven't been losing fat on 1,200 calories a day, but hey, here's this magic plan and you're going to lose fat. And what I'm telling them is, you know what? You've been dieting improperly for a long time. This is going to take a long time to fix. You know, it may be six, 12, 18 months before we even can start to, to focus on fat loss again. 
And people don't want to hear that, right? They, right. they want to be told the easy answer. And so uh, I tell people, I'm like, listen, when I start figure out a solution that's faster, I'll, I'll let you know. <laughs> right. So, you know, I think from that perspective, it, you know, you're not always going to be able to swing people and, and you know, trying to get people go like you guys, they each perform, like, it, it, it's going to be tough. I, what I always tell people is, hey, listen, the easiest thing in the world for me would be to take your money and tell you what you want to hear. But I, I have a conscience that I'm not going to do that. And you've been doing it this way for so many years, and look where it's gotten you. So why not try something different? Well, you actually, know? you know what? It's funny that you say that because I say that in on like sales pages that, look, yeah. I get it. You want to have an ideal physique and you want to think that less, less, less is the model. But right. if that were the case, you wouldn't be listening to this right now, right? right. And so the, and I think we have to clarify too. We're, we're not saying never diet. Right. What we're saying is diet in a sustainable way and diet when your metabolism can is, is, is ready for it and when you can effectively do it. Not, not trying to force, not trying to beat down your metabolism uh, even further because of years of improper dieting. Yeah, actually both, in fact, both women, you, you sort of nailed the number that um, Jordy is going to be cutting at in, on the 15th um, when you said 2,400 because that's, that's her cutting <laughs> number, you know. Um, and, and, you know, the, the way that we do it is three different numbers based on activity. You know, it's kind of similar to most models. Um, but right. you know, when, when you're eating 2,900 calories and then you're, you're dieting at 2,300 calories, you know, the accumulated stress, all these different factors that come in, they don't, you know, affect you similarly to the way, you know, 1,200 would, you know, cause you know, exactly. It's so common to see people just want to burn the candle at both ends. Well, you did mention and, it. And Go ahead. Look, look at it this way too. When you're when you can eat more calories like that and, and lose body fat or, or maintain weight, you give you give yourself a lot more flexibility in your life too. Because let's say for example, somebody who's used to maintaining weight at 1,200 calories goes out for dinner and. They decide they're going to, and I, I recommend, I tell clients, I'm like, hey, you know, I want you to go out, estimate, you know, like, that's part of life. And let's say you're off, and you eat uh, 300 calories over, right? 300 calories for somebody who maintains on 1,200 calories a day, a 300 calorie error is a lot bigger deal for somebody who maintains on 1,200 than somebody who maintains on 2,400. Right. Like, that's a much, because for the person on 1,200, that's a fourth of their of their what they maintain at whereas the person on 2400 it's an eighth or yeah something like that and so who do you think this is why people who are chronic dieters they'll go out to eat for a night wake up the next morning and they're three pounds heavier and sure some of that's water but you know they they'll be you know one two pounds heavier and it stays you know I've even seen people, like, after a long, prolonged diet, they just go crazy for a week. And I've seen people put on 20, even 30 pounds. And people will say, well, it's water. And I said, my response to that is, well, water doesn't stick around for six months, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things that you're hitting on that, uh, honestly, you know, I just want to delve into it. But each one of them has, like, 15 minutes of discussion, right? But, oh, yeah. 
yeah, I could go down the rabbit hole, I'm sure. But one of the things that, that's sort of interesting that I think we can kind of go quick on is that the idea that less, 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 like you said, we're not saying that you would never diet, you would never address fat loss, things of that nature. But really, it's that mindset of more, more, more. And when I say more, 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 like when we talk about the concept of expansion, because Mike, Mike does a whole module on it in the seminars that we do together. And what's interesting about it is, is that I, I sort of hate that word because it scares people because they think my, my waist is expanding. But, but what we're talking about is, is work capacity. I think that, you know, if I were to ask you, you know, you know, from a personal level, your powerlifting numbers, you know, what's, what's your pride level as it relates to how much you lift compared to how well you dieted? Oh, my pride level is way higher with my policy numbers. <laughs> right. And so so I think that if people understood that, that when you are, diet, are, are dieting a very small fraction of the time compared to the time that you're expanding work capacity and, you know, kind of pushing that top in, that it's not just you're, – you're not just doing it to lift more or you're not just doing – you're really doing it for really a better relationship with yourself. Right, and I know that sounds a little hokey, yeah. but that's kind of that's kind of what it is. Um, what no, the, I mean I've I've, I've taken people who are physique competitors who all they're focused on is their physique, which is fine. But I'll get them doing some powerlifting or something else that's more kind of empirical, you know, in terms of you know they they can tangibly see their numbers going up, and all of a sudden they used to have all these problems with body image. It all goes, you know, it's not always, but a lot of it goes away because they. Just, Hey, I, well, okay, well, I gained a pound, but I also crushed squats this week, you know, and so it kind of, like, it gives them something else to focus on as opposed to focusing on that number on the scale. Yeah, one of the things I remember, you know, we did this a while back with uh, Brad Schoenfeld, and we talked about uh, water and muscle, and we talked about, you know, the relationship with carbohydrates and, and all these various things. In terms of getting the getting um, you know water inside the cell, right? But he was so, he was sort of hesitant to really talk about you know water the way that you are, right? I mean, because you're you've you've mentioned it multiple times, and frankly, I I was sort of saying this to Brad at the time that water is such a big deal. You know, and and can you talk about water and muscle? Because I think that that would be very interesting to people because, you know, there's so many people out there that think that, one, if they gain two pounds, they're going to gain, you know, they gain fat. And that's not reality. Yeah. I do think that what you're saying is true. If you make yourself cellularly inflexible and, you know, it's staying on for six months, then then obviously we have a problem. Right. But in general, sure. you can play with those water levels a lot more than most people think. And, and can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, we know that, I mean, water can fluctuate a lot in a person. Um, I know Katie, uh, who I mentioned earlier, she, uh, when we were dieting for a contest, she, she gained six pounds in a week, and the next week she had lost nine pounds for a net loss over two weeks of three pounds, right? <laughs> um, and so if you just look at one of those weeks 
in isolation, you would have gone, oh my God, in both directions, you know? And, and, and by that point, I worked with her long enough. I knew she fluctuated quite a bit. Now, that was a pretty extreme fluctuation. But I, I always tell people, you know, yes, you want to be cautious that the, you know, the scale isn't going up too fast, right? But if somebody gains three pounds in a week and they, you know, they hit their targets, they trained hard, all that kind of stuff, do I really think they put on three pounds of body fat? No, I don't, because three pounds of body fat makes you look way different. You know, I mean, that's a, that's a big difference. And so what, I, what I'll typically do with clients is, you know, I have them keep weight as long as they're mature enough to handle that and understand what that, you know, what that means. Um, but also waist measurement, uh, leg circumference, hip, um, take pictures, and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So you have more than one measure of feedback, you know, because if you're just looking at weight, that'll fluctuate up and down. I mean, I, this, just this week, I've been as high as 207, and I've been as low as 199, you know. So if I just picked, it, and my true weight is probably around 203 to 205, you know, that's where I tend to sit most of the time at. But if you just picked out one of those those data points, I mean, that's an outlier, you know. Just think about any data set, you're going to invariably have outliers. And so, what you don't want to do is, is look at an outlier as what your true number is. And so what I'll really do as far as weight, as long as people don't become obsessive with it, is I'll just say, well, just weigh every day in the morning before you eat anything and then take the average for the week because that average is going to wash out a lot of those outliers. So so one of the points that I want to address here, okay, so you're powerlifting, right? And, and there's no 24-hour weigh-in. You know, you're just doing Correct. what you do. Okay. Would, would you rather be lifting at 207 or 199? Uh, well, I would rather be lifting at 207. <laughs> right. And so, so my point being, and, and what I'm really trying to get across to our coaches and, and to anybody that's watching this, is that muscle hydration matters, right? It, oh, absolutely. It allows yeah, absolutely. you to, yeah, it allows you to do more work. And so, absolutely. And and so, uh, I I think you know whether we're talking about creatine, whether we're talking about carbohydrates, you know. Um, oh well, it's interesting you know creatine because a lot of you know a lot of companies what they'll say is well our creatine doesn't cause you to retain water, and I'll say oh really? Well, so your creatine is not is is actually not anabolic then. It's what I'll say to people. And well, no, it's anabolic. I'm so well, you, you're actually saying like one of the most anabolic properties of creatine that yours doesn't have it. <laughs> so that's a really excellent point. Well, th so let's take it even further. Okay, one of the things that people always get concerned about that that we just tell people. I don't know of any other way of building muscle muscle than to be a little bloated occasionally, right? I mean, if 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 you're not pushing that part then you're really not getting anywhere. And, you know, it's interesting because most people talk about building muscle. And, you know, I don't know if you know Alex Vieta or not, but, but he brought up a great point. He said, basically, you're asking your body to build new capillaries, new blood vessels, along with tissue. It does not happen easily. So whatever you do has to be pretty hard, right? But then it also has to have a food component as well. And so if you do any part of that wrong, you know, the, the adaptation of stimulus might be lessened. And so, you know, I think that 
you know, when we talk about bloating, people look at it as sort of a negative thing. I can tell you right now, you know, I'm going into this competition tomorrow and I am absolutely 100% bloated right now, right? Because I want to be able to lift the most weights. Yeah, I, I, I find actually, even with a two-hour weigh and I'll usually start consuming quite a bit of sodium about two hours or two hours before the weigh-in because it won't it won't hit me by the time I'm weighing in, but by the time I'm lifting on the platform, it'll hit me. I mean, when you have a little more body water, you have a little better uh, mobility, a little better, uh, um, for lack of a better term, joint lubrication, and you also have, you also... Um, your levers are a little bit better, at least in terms of power lifting. Like it provides you with some, 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 ah, how do I want to say it? Um, ergonomic advantages, I guess, is a poor way of putting it, but that's how I'll say it. Oh, there's um, no. Like I said, long, long down the boat, doctor, I can't think of the right word, but you, you know, you're right. And um, I think, I think we have to make an important distinction. You know, cellular hydration is not going to feel like, like a typical bloat. I mean, you're just going to feel very full and very filled out in terms of your muscles, and you're going to have a lot of glycogen. And, I mean, all that stuff is great for performance. Well, people mistake it. You know, when they say, oh, I'm going to have to fill out a bunch of water, they think about when they've eaten a huge meal and they feel really bloated in their GI, you know, because they have all this food in their GI and it pulls water into that area. Well, that's where you don't want to pull water. I mean, you don't want that. You know, because that's going to be can upset your GI. You want your your body water to be stored in your intracellular uh, in your intracellular fluid, and that's going to help you perform better. And it's going to you know you're going to feel good, and you're actually going to look better too. Yeah, I mean, one of the mistakes that I know a lot of competitors are making right now is they're eating a bunch of carbs right now, and they're going to compete tomorrow at you know nine ten o'clock in the morning, and digestion is not going to be there. And so when I loaded, I loaded this morning, you know, and so when I yeah. ate carbs at night, I ate a relatively low carb meal, just had some gummy bears and I'm about to go to bed. Right. And so that that's what a lo- I think a lot of people sort of um, miss out on the. Um, so we'll finish up here. There was one thing that I am missing out on. I don't know what just happened. <laughs> Did Lane fall downstairs? Um, no, that was my uh, my son is getting ready for bed, and he just uh, took one of his toys and dropped on the floor. So my apologies. Yeah, no problem. But um, the perils of, the perils of family life. Okay, so last thing, last thing, you you just mentioned sodium. Okay, now typical dieting talks about sodium and salt, and 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 we're no different, right? I mean, we you know we check people's sodium levels, and we say, well, you know. If you're eating 5,000, you know, milligrams of sodium, then, you know, you might want to cut back on some of that. But sodium, you know, you're one of the first people that I've read, you know, that talks about it pretty positively. I think obviously in the bodybuilding world, it's sort of known that for the, you know, for to get into the cell, sodium is really important part of that process. Can you just finish on that note? Because I think that there's a lot of athletes. If you're an athlete and you're avoiding sodium, you're sort of missing a little bit of the magic. Yeah, so actually the the sodium literature is kind of grossly misinterpreted out there. Um, If you look at the sodium literature, there's only about 10% of people who are salt sensitive and who don't clear sodium very well. 
and for them, probably staying under you know twenty four hundred milligrams of sodium a day is, is 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 important. But for the average person, whatever you eat sodium wise, you just pee more out the next day. So if you, I I've seen extreme example examples. I'll use Katie again. She consumes about fifteen thousand milligrams of sodium a day, and her blood pressure is completely fine. So you know it, it's one of those things where. Like, her body is used to that, and so she just excretes a lot of sodium. Now, she also drinks a lot of water, right? So she's drinking about three gallons of water a day, and so she can tolerate that sodium intake. And I think, you know, people who cut sodium, that's a huge problem. I've actually had, I've actually had athletes who will tell me, oh, you know, well, I just I tire out really quickly, or, you know, I don't feel good, et cetera, and I'll start looking at their diet. I'm like, well, you, you realize you're not eating any sodium at all, right? You're eating like 900 milligrams, so you're actually like deficient in sodium. And I'll have them add sodium. I'll have them add salt. Like, oh my god, I feel so much better. It's like, well, yeah, you know, this controls like a lot of the processes in your body and like all the electrochemical gradients in your cells. You know, like you need sodium. Yeah, there's and a so, reason why it exists in nature, like in everything. You know, exactly. Like it's it's one of the most crucial things, and. You know, uh, so I, especially if you're an athlete who's sweating a lot, I mean, I think 2,500 milligrams has got to be a minimum. You yeah, know? I, like you, you're, you're probably going to want to be around four or 5,000, especially if you're drinking a lot of food because you're going to be pushing a lot of sodium out as well. Yeah, no, I agree that that could be really low. I think the other thing, and we don't really need to talk about it because, you know, obviously you can go, you know, on, on tangents on a lot of things, but you know, potassium is also pretty important as it relates to processing that kind of stuff within the body and kind of getting nutrients to cells and things of that nature. So, um, any last thing that you want, you know, obviously, you know, people would be very interested in listening to your podcast based on, you know, all the information that you gave today. So can you tell them where they would find that? Sure. So, uh, Physique Science Radio is our podcast, and you can find us on iTunes as well as SoundCloud. Um, and also my website, biolane.com. Um, I've got a lot of really cool projects coming up that I wish were finished right now, so I can mention all of them. But, uh, yeah, people just go to my website and sign up for my newsletter. It's uh, You just go in there and sign up for it. I have, like, a lot of updates, or you can follow me on social media. Uh, I'm on Facebook. You have a fan page there. I'm on Twitter at BioLane and Instagram at BioLane, and then my YouTube channel is also BioLane. So you can find me on any of those platforms and anything I got going on. Obviously, I'll, I'll keep everybody updated through each of those platforms. Okay, Lane, I really appreciate you doing this. This was obviously, you know, this was actually one of the best ones we've ever done. You know, we were able to cover a lot of ground, and we didn't end up talking about hypertrophy for three hours. Um, so that, that's good. I mean, we've, we've, we've been in the hypertrophy rabbit hole for some reason. So, um, but I appreciate you being here. Yeah, for sure. All right, guys. Well, have a great evening and, and get your son to bed. Good talking to you guys. Good talking to you guys. Take care. Adios. Bye-bye.